In the days of the early church, being a Christian was costly. As an openly devoted follower of Jesus, because it often brought persecution. The persecution they endured, it, it took many forms. And one of the most common forms of persecution that we're probably familiar with hearing about is physical violence. You've probably all read or heard about stories of Christians being tossed to the lines or, or burned at the stake. And what we may not realize is those were actually some of the more merciful deaths that our Christian forefathers suffered for the sake of Jesus Christ. Some of the other methods I found in my study for this week included being dipped in pitch, set on fire, and used as a living torch to light Nero's gardens. I heard someone say that that was the origin of the phrase a Roman candle. Christians were sewn inside wild animal skins and then had hunting dogs loosed on them as people watched while they were torn apart. Some Christians were skinned alive. Some Christians had molten lead poured on their bodies, allowing it to burn deep into them. Some had their eyes gouged out. Some Christians had parts of their bodies cut off and roasted as they were forced to watch. Now those aren't really pleasant things to think about, but that is what was the cost of following Jesus in those early days, and, and still is in some parts of the world. But Christians also suffered being reviled and having evil things said about them. Right? This included being called homewreckers. Right? And this was because when someone came to Christ for salvation, they often found that their family would not accept it. So husbands divorced wives, wives divorced husbands, parents disowned children, and children abandoned their parents. Now this wasn't the Christians that did the divorcing and the abandoning, but it was the unbelievers. They refused to stay married to a follower of Jesus Christ or be a part of them, and so they abandoned them. Slanders used this to accuse Christians of seeking to wreck home and destroy families. Christians were accused of being traitors because they would not worship Caesar. Emperor worship was the national religion of Rome. And regardless of what other god you may have worshipped, you were expected to worship the emperor at least once a year. Once a year, every good Roman citizen was expected to burn a pinch of incense to an image of Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. Early Christians would not do this because Jesus is Lord. No one else deserved that title. This was considered a major test of loyalty to the Roman government. In fact, after burning the pinch of incense, the citizen was given a certificate to show they had done it. After this, they could go and worship any other god that they chose. When Christians refused to do this, they were denied the certificate and they were branded as traitors and outlaws. They lost homes and jobs and families over their refusal to worship Caesar. Now, as you can imagine, these things had a terrible impact on the lives of Christians. And what we have to understand is that what caused this was Jesus. Uh, one poet of the day said that their crime, said they, they, that the Christians were a panting, huddled flock whose only crime was Jesus. That the only crime they were guilty of that caused them to suffer these things and many more was that they were devoted to Jesus above everything and everyone else. That devotion cost them family. That devotion cost them friends. That devotion cost them homes. That devotion cost them jobs. That devotion cost them comfort. And in many cases, that devotion even cost them their lives. 
Now the kicker to all of this is that they could have stopped all of this suffering at any time. All they had to do was renounce Christ. If they'd only said they would no longer believed in Jesus and they would no longer serve Jesus or preach in Jesus, everything would have stopped. Their fortunes would have been restored. Their families would have come back. They would have had their lives spared. And really, they honestly would not have even had to mean it. Right? They could have, you know, crossed their fingers and burned the pinch of incense and said, Caesar is Lord. And then under the breath said, no, really, I don't mean it. But they didn't. They could have pretended not to be devoted to Jesus to save themselves. But they didn't. Instead, they willingly chose to lose everything and die horribly rather than to deny their Savior. So the question is, was that a right decision? I mean, is that what Jesus would have us do if we're faced with a similar situation? Let's open your Bibles and see. Open your Bible to Matthew 5. I'm going to read verses 10, 11, and 12. That should be on page 736 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Matthew 5 and 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The title of the message this morning is, Blessed are those who are persecuted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come today and we look at a hard passage with a hard teaching. Father, we are naturally wired to seek comfort and ease and the path of least resistance. And yet we see from the example of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus and the example of of our Christian forefathers that this is not the path we are meant to take. As disciples of Jesus, we are blessed when we're persecuted and we're meant to rejoice at being treated in that way. Father, that is not a natural line of thought. That is not how we think on our own. And there is no way we can change our minds and make ourselves think that way apart from you. Father, as we look at this passage today, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit and do a work in our lives. Father, first let your Holy Spirit come and examine our hearts. I mean, are we devoted to Jesus? Are we willing to follow him? No matter the cost. Lord, it's really easy to say that we are, but it's really difficult to live that out. So let your spirit search us today. Let him bring to to mind what is real about that answer, about that question. Let him show us, Father, who we really are and whether or not we are devoted to Jesus. And Lord, where we're not. Bother us by that. 
Father, where we take the the path of least resistance, convict us and give us courage to stand and do the right thing no matter what. Father, let your Holy Spirit give us courage today. Lord, that we would look at what Jesus has taught and we would choose the path of courage and the path of discipleship. Lord, help us. Help us not to be like Sardis. Help us not to have a reputation for being a Jesus follower, but the reality is something far different. Help us not to be lukewarm Laodiceans that make Jesus sick with our half-hearted devotion. Father, we need you today to do something within us, to change us. Lord, we're not able to muster these sort of things up on our own. This isn't a matter of us turning over a new leaf or making a great determination that we're going to do better tomorrow. This is something that only you can bring to bear in our lives. Only you can create in our lives. So Holy Spirit, come today and we surrender to you to do whatever work you need to be done. You know needs to be done in our lives. Work in this service today and save the lost. Restore the prodigal. Courage the discouraged. Strengthen the weak. Open spiritually blind eyes. Heal the brokenhearted. And let us leave here today born again, spirit-filled, fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ that are committed to doing His will no matter the cost, no matter the circumstances. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. She may be seated. One of the greatest facets of Jesus' teaching is His honesty. Jesus was honest to a fault about what it would mean to follow Him. And we see that in this passage. He is describing what will happen to those who choose to follow Him. Those who are fully devoted to Jesus and determined to follow Him no matter what, they will face some sort of persecution, they will be reviled, and they will have negative things that will come into their lives. At the same time, those people are blessed and they should rejoice. That's typically not a combination that we would think of. But that is the picture that Jesus paints here. But if you think about it, Being willing to suffer persecution for Jesus' sake. To suffer being reviled for His sake. To to go through that and say, I'm blessed. Great will be my reward in heaven. That is a picture of devotion. I mean, that's the picture of the kind of devotion that all disciples are meant to have. This is what Jesus wants from all of us. And the key truth today is that disciples are devoted to Jesus regardless of the consequences. Disciples of Jesus are devoted to Jesus regardless of the consequences. Now there is something within within us that would want to push back against that. Because we have in our day created different classes of devotion. 
But we don't find that in the teaching of Jesus. We don't find that in the teaching of Paul or in the Bible in general. There aren't those who are sort of devoted. And then those who are a little bit more and partially devoted. Then those who are a little bit more and mostly devoted. And finally, those who have given it all and are wholly devoted. You just find those who are devoted and those who aren't. That's the classification that we find in Scripture. The Christians who suffered and died. They weren't superhero Christians with a level of devotion normal Christians cannot hope to attain. They were just ordinary Christians with the ordinary kind of devotion that Scripture describes, that Jesus demands, and really that Jesus deserves. Having given His life for us, He intends that we would be willing to give our life for Him. As He told the people in Smyrna, it's bad, it's going to get worse, be faithful unto death. That's what he expects. That's what he demands. That's what he deserves. Now looking at this passage, there are three aspects to this kind of devotion to Jesus. First, there is a devotion to righteousness. But he says in verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now righteousness here would be the same thing we looked at a few weeks ago. In Matthew 5 and 3, Blessed are the poor and... Or blessed are... Well, I lost my train of thought. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Right? It refers to the full measure of righteousness. A desire to be righteous and a desire to do righteous. Right? Those who are righteous in Christ will live righteously. And when we are righteous and we live righteously, there will often be a cost Associated with that. In a big way the persecution for righteousness sake comes because we are not like the world. I don't know if you've noticed or not. But the world at large does not like things or people that are different. If you are different than the norm. You typically suffer in one way or another. And we will not be righteous and do righteous and be like the culture at large. We will be different. And that difference will often make people uncomfortable. It will often make them angry. And it will often lead to them to respond with ridicule, mockery, discrimination, and at times possibly even violence. We are to be Righteous and do righteous anyway. Turn with me to 1 Peter 4, page 936. 1 Peter 4 and 1, Peter writes, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh. Now, the idea that Christ suffered to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could be right with God, is the foundation of the argument Peter is about to make in in what we're going to look at. The reason that our suffering for righteousness' sake is only a, a measure of what Christ suffered so that we could be righteous. Now the inspired authors of Scripture 
often use Jesus' suffering for us to motivate us to follow his example and face suffering ourselves. That's what Peter's doing here. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, what do we do? Arm yourself with the same mind. Right? In other words, be ready to have that same attitude. Jesus suffered for you. Have that same mindset so that you may have to suffer with Him. Now, what this means is that we're going to have to deny our natural inclinations. Because for most of us, for most of us, our natural inclination is not to arm ourselves with that same mind and endure suffering for the sake of Christ. For most of us, our natural inclination is to find the easy way out. For most of us, the natural inclination is to take the path of least resistance. If our being righteous and doing righteous is going to offend someone, we will do it secretly, privately. We will not make a stir. We won't do anything that maybe would cost a friend to be angry or cost the friendship. We won't stand in a way for righteousness that would make them uncomfortable or would testify to them that their lifestyle, that their actions, that their attitudes are wrong. We won't do things in a way that would make our lives more difficult. So we will push it down. We will exalt. We will resist the, the righteousness that Christ wants to bring in us. And we will not do what will make our lives difficult. We'll harm our friendships or do anything along those lines. And what Jesus is, or what Paul, it's going to be a long day, what Peter is telling us here is, we cannot do that. We must deny that natural inclination to take the path of least resistance and be like Jesus. And being like Jesus means that we are willing to suffer in the flesh for His sake. Now, suffering being willing to suffer for Jesus does not mean that we choose suffering. Right? It doesn't mean that we go out of our way to suffer. Right? There is a difference between seeking suffering and enduring suffering. The believer in Jesus is not a masochist. We do not seek suffering for the sake of suffering. We live for Jesus. We are righteous and we do righteous. And if that brings suffering, so be it. That's just the way that it goes. We will do what Jesus would have us to do regardless of the consequences. We do not turn away. We don't run away. And we don't try to hide from it. But neither do we seek it out. He goes on and says that for those who have suffered in the flesh have ceased from sin. That's a great picture. Because what he says is if you're devoted enough to Jesus to be willing to suffer for the sake of Jesus, chances are you're going to live a holy life. Right? You're... You have already decided that Jesus is greater than anything else. So if you're willing to suffer for Christ, you're going to live a holy life. Um, you're not going to live your life in the lust of the flesh, in the flesh, the lust of man, for, but, but for the will of God. Right? So those, when we choose and say, I'm going to live for Jesus no matter what, I'm going to be devoted to Him regardless of the cost, that is going to produce a holiness within us. We will live a life that testifies of what Jesus Christ has done. We do this because we know that we've spent enough of our past lifetime doing the will, and he says Gentiles, but just think about that as unbelievers. Doing the will of unbelievers. When in the past we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable 
idolatries. And he said, what happens is, when we're devoted to Jesus, we've had enough of the old way of life. We know how we lived before we came to Jesus. We know what we were like. And we don't look longingly back at that old lifestyle. We don't look longingly back at the way that we were. We don't look longingly back at lewdness and lust and revelries and drunkenness. We don't look back and say, oh, just one more time. Oh, I would love to do that. Oh, those were the best days of my life. Rather, when we are devoted to Jesus, we look at that and we say, I did it no more. I I did that. I wasted my life. Paul would say in Romans chapter 6 that I'm ashamed of it now and I want nothing else to do with it. Now once we make that sort of decision that we're not going to live that way anymore, we've had enough of that old way of life, we're not going to be a part of it, something begins to happen around the world around us. In regard to these, they, people around you, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation and then they speak evil of you. Right, so there is the potential consequence to a devotion to righteousness. We say, I've had enough of that. I'm not going to live that way anymore. I'm, now, I'm different now. I'm devoted to Jesus. I'm going to live for Him. And our friends, our associates, our co-workers, those who maybe knew us before, they don't understand why we've made the change in our life. They don't understand why we won't talk the way we talk, live the way we live, while we value and prioritize our lives in the way that we do. And so what they start doing is, they start talking bad about us. They start, as he says, they speak evil of us. Now, we've probably all seen it in a variety of ways. Um, Some things I've seen along this line is that whether they speak evil is they they try to remind. You say, no, I'm not going to do that. Oh, Now he says that. But I remember a time. Oh, I remember back in the day when they... And they kind of bring up your past over and over again in an effort to humiliate you. Right? To show that you... you, Oh, you act so holy now, but oh my goodness, I know what you really are. Sometimes the evil speaking is lies or gossip about things that we're supposedly doing. But I've seen... Christians, people get saved and begin to live this out. And their former friends begin to say things like, Oh, they're not doing it in public, but I guarantee you they're still doing it in private. They're not any different. They're just hiding it better than they used to. But, or they just begin to say how, Oh, they're holier than thou. I just can't stand holier than thou hypocritical Christians. Somebody who acts like that now and knowing all the things that they've done. Right? And that's a, that's a possible consequence of our being devoted to Jesus and being devoted to being righteous and doing righteous. Now I've seen a couple of examples of this. Go ahead and turn back to Matthew 5 in my life that stand out. One is a friend of mine who had, had a friend and they were best friends for years and years and years. And they were involved in lewdness and lust and drunkenness and wild parties. Uh, together, and when my friend got saved and committed his life to Christ, he stopped doing all of those things. And he didn't really condemn his friend for continuing it. He just wasn't going to himself. And his friend said something like this to him. Well, if you're going to become a church boy, I'm not going to have anything else to do with you. And that was it. I mean, they had been friends for years. They had been there through each other's weddings. They had been there through each other's divorces. They had been there side by side, roommates, through college. But none of that mattered. 
Because my friend became a church boy and it was over. That guy never talked to him again. Would not even speak a word to him because of it. Now, he could have kept the friendship. He could have easily kept the friendship. All he would have had to have done was go back into lewdness, lust, drunkenness, and wild parties. If he went back to the way he was before, the friendship would have been fine. That guy would have been okay with it. But it was his devotion to righteousness is what cost him in that moment. Another is a friend of mine that was a produce manager at a grocery store. He committed his life to Christ and he... He couldn't bring himself to do some of the shady accounting that his boss wanted him to do that he had always done before. After several weeks of not doing the shady accounting, his boss came up to him and said, this, this Jesus thing isn't going to work out. You're either going to have to choose between that Jesus stuff or you're going to have to choose your job. And so my friend, who was a college student and was married to a college student, Chose the Jesus stuff, took off his apron, and lost his job right there on the spot. Now, he could have kept his job, and he made good money for a college student at that job. All he would have had to have done was keep doing the shady accounting that his boss wanted him to do, and everything would have been fine. But his devotion to be righteous and do righteous prevented him from being able to do that. For those of us who would say, I want to be devoted to Christ, and I want to be righteous, and I want to do righteous, there may well be a cost. And the question is, are we willing to pay it? Are we willing to be righteous and do righteous, even if it costs us a friendship? Now, we would say, well, Jesus would never want me to do that, because how could I influence them? If Jesus told the people in Smyrna to be faithful unto death, I can promise you, Jesus would say, be faithful unto the loss of a friendship. Are we willing to pay that cost for our devotion to Jesus? Are we willing to be righteous and do righteous if it costs us our jobs? Are we willing to be righteous and to do righteous regardless of the cost of and the consequences it brings to our lives. How we answer that question reveals what we are devoted to. Reveals what is the primary object of our devotion in life. So we want to be, there's a devotion to righteousness, but there's also a devotion to Christ-likeness. Jesus says in verse 11, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Now, this isn't really in my notes because I didn't have time to put it in there, but I'm going to take time. Falsely. That's an important part of the whole concept here. If they revile you for being a jerk, that's not the same thing. right? If they revile you for actually being a hypocrite, that's not what he's talking about. Falsely. If what they're saying against you is true, or me, is true, we are not blessed. Great is not our reward in heaven. Falsely. It has to be a lie if it's bad about us. Keep that in mind. So, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Basically, he's saying, we'll be blessed when the world treats us 
like it treated Jesus. That's, to me, that's a huge concept. How many of you have ever heard something along these lines? If only Christians acted more like Jesus, the world would love us more. Or, or the, the quote that's often attributed to Gandhi, I like your Jesus, but not your Christians, for they are not much like your Jesus. And that's what we often hear. Oh, the church was just more like Jesus and loved everyone. Everybody would love us. And we would be so popular and so influential in the world. But I wonder, is that really true? I mean, Jesus was as much like Jesus as anyone could possibly be. How did that work for him? How did his life end? Was he wildly accepted? At the end of his life, did he have just troves of people cheering him on and clapping, Yay, Jesus, we love you. Or did he just die badly? Virtually alone. Because even his closest disciples had abandoned him. No. If we're like Jesus, we are going to be the opposite of popular and loved and cheered by the world. The world will not love us for being like Jesus. Instead, the world will treat us as it treated Jesus. If we're like Jesus. Now Jesus told us this would happen. Look over at Matthew 10. Look at verse 16. This warning. Again, the the brutal honesty of Jesus is great. Behold, I send you out as sheep... In the midst of wolves. Now, is that a friendly relationship that he's talking about right off the bat? Sheep and wolves like palling around. Erica, when you guys had sheep, was that the way that it all worked out? The wolves were just like hanging out and playing playing games together? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I, I mean, when we go out as followers of Jesus, we go out into a dangerous world that doesn't like us, doesn't want us. And we'll try to destroy us. But we're to go out anyway. And as we go out, we're to be wise as serpents. So we're aware of the fact we're sheep going out in the midst of wolves. But we're to be harmless as doves. So not only are we to go out into this dangerous world aware of the danger, we're not to go out and preemptively strike. Right? We don't go out and are harsh and are hateful and are rude. We go out... And we do the things Jesus would have us to do. He says in verse 17, But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them, to the Gentiles. So when we go out, we go out and the world is basically going to treat us as it treated Jesus. They're going to hate us. They may beat us. They will speak evil about us for one reason. Just because we follow Jesus. That's what he says. Now look down at verse 22. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Now notice the last part. This isn't a part of the message either, but I want to point it. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. We think it means to endure to the end. 
means to push through the suffering and be devoted to Jesus. Stay faithful to Him despite the hardship. So those who endure to the end will be saved. What happens to those who don't endure to the end? I'll let you figure that out. So you'll be hated by all men for my name's sake. It's pretty rough. And it's interesting. He doesn't give any qualifiers. You'll be hated by all men for my name's sake. So who are some of the all people who will hate us for the sake of Jesus? Verse 17. They'll deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. So there's religious people. Right? So religious people aren't going to like us because we're like Jesus. Verse 18, you'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. So there it talks about government, political people aren't going to like us because of our devotion to Jesus. And then verse 21, now brother will deliver up brother to death and a father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. So there it's even our own family may not like us because of our devotion to Jesus. So when Jesus says, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, it seems pretty clear that this hatred will come from all sides and from people from all walks of life. And it is only because of our devotion to Jesus, because we are like Jesus. You say, well, why does the world hate us? Why would the world hate us? Because we're like Jesus. Why did the world hate Jesus? Well, Scripture teaches that there are two kingdoms and two forces at work in the world. There is the kingdom of God and there is the kingdom of darkness. There is God and there is the devil. Right Now, these two forces are always at work in the world. As we go out as followers of Jesus Christ, we are ambassadors for the kingdom. Right? We are Citizens of the kingdom of light. We are followers of Christ. Now the other kingdom, the other force at work, it's not neutral toward the kingdom of God. It is diametrically opposed and it is violently opposed. When we go out as followers of Jesus, we upset the kingdom of darkness. We anger them. We threaten their rule in people's hearts and in people's lives. But only as we're devoted to Jesus. Make no mistake. If we go out as half-hearted, lukewarm, have a reputation, but are something different type of followers of Jesus, we don't threaten the kingdom of darkness. We don't threaten Satan and his minions and his hold on people's lives. So we're not going to face opposition. But as we go out devoted to Jesus, determined to be righteous, to do righteous, to be like Jesus, no matter what, we are a threat to Satan's stranglehold. We take light into the darkness. We are... In a spiritual battle when we go out. And so all of the forces of Satan will respond in anger and in opposition toward us. Since we are representatives of the kingdom of light, we should not be surprised when we face opposition from the kingdom of darkness. In all honesty, if we go out as ambassadors for the kingdom of light, we should be surprised if we don't face opposition. From the kingdom of darkness. We're going to start a series on Wednesday. Through Ezra and then through Nehemiah. And in Ezra and Nehemiah. They're both doing the same thing. They're doing the work of God. Ezra starts off with Zerubbabel. Going back to rebuild the temple. Ezra's going to go back and rebuild the religious life. Nehemiah's going to go back and rebuild the wall. 
as they go back, they face opposition each time. But it's not because of Zerubbabel. And it's not because of Ezra. And it's not because of Nehemiah. Because they're largely unknown to the world of Judah when they go back. The opposition isn't against them as people. The opposition is against them as ambassadors for the kingdom of light. As they try to do the work of God, Satan seeks to thwart it and oppose it. That's what's going to happen with us. When we are devoted to righteousness and devoted to Christ's likeness, we upset the kingdom of darkness and there will be opposition. See, it's not so much that the world hates us as individuals, but they hate the Jesus who lives in us. They hate the kingdom that we represent. And so they treat us in the way that they would treat Jesus if he were here. Now, Jesus again warned us that this would happen. As I look at the world around us, I, I don't try to be a doom and gloom and end times prophet kind of guy. I'm not in favor of all of that kind of stuff. But I, I do think that what we see is going to get worse. I think the opposition to Christ and His kingdom and those who are devoted to Him is going to get worse. But not only will it get worse, it is going to get more socially acceptable. I think the days are coming. In which the church will be thinned out greatly. Because devotion to Jesus will be costly to us in America soon. And unfortunately, many people who profess faith really aren't devoted enough to Jesus to endure to the end. I think as it gets more common and as it gets more acceptable, more and more will either compromise on what the Bible says is right, on what Jesus says is true, Or they will walk away from the faith altogether. We have to be wise as disciples of Jesus to understand that the world is going to react negatively to proclaiming the gospel. There is one path to heaven and it is through Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. Living for Jesus, a life that is devoted to holiness, self-denial, serving others, and in biblical morality. Boy, I don't have time to get into it, but just go out and say certain sins are always wrong. I mean, that's a, that's a guaranteed issue. Several months ago, maybe last year, I was preaching a message, and we had a lady that was visiting the church, and she didn't visit often, but she did come some. And I, I mentioned homosexuality. Now, I, I didn't... It wasn't the point of the sermon. I was actually... Showing that Jesus could save people out of any sin. And homosexuality was just one that was listed in 1 Corinthians 6. So I didn't even spend time there. I just mentioned it as I went along. She got up and walked out that day while I was talking. Never came back. I mean, that was it. She was done. That was the, that was the line. And once that line was crossed, she was done with it. Could have kept her here, I suppose. All I would have had to have done was not preach what the Bible said. She never got offended. She would never left. But that's not really what devotion to Jesus is like. Devotion to Jesus requires us to say and do what the Bible says, what Jesus says, no matter the consequences. It's the question, are we concerned? Are we more concerned about being liked by the world or being devoted to Jesus? When we are devoted to Jesus and we are devoted to being like Jesus... It will grate on people's nerves. And it will cost us. 
Is that a cost we're willing to pay? And how we answer that says a lot about who or what we are truly devoted to. So there's a devotion to righteousness, devotion to Christ-likeness, and a devotion to faithfulness. Verse 12, Jesus says, Rejoice, be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When we suffer for the sake of Christ, we are in good company. Because that's how the prophets of old were treated. To me, this is a really powerful thought. Because if you read the Old Testament, you know that Israel periodically turned away from Jesus, or turned away from God and began to wander and worship Moloch and Baal and all of these kind of things. But God never just let His people go. God cares. He loves. He, he sent prophets to the people to, to go and say, Hey, you're, you agreed to follow the law, and now you're not, why don't you turn back and come to God? Because if you don't, all of the curses that the law said are going to they're, they're happen, but God doesn't want to do that to you. Why don't you turn and, and come back to God now before all of that happens? So you got guys like Jeremiah and Isaiah, they're preaching that. But there are always these other guys too. And these guys are also claiming to be prophets of God. And what they do is they come along behind, say, Jeremiah and Isaiah, and they say, oh, no, no, no. God says peace. God says everything's fine. God's not concerned about the way you worship Moloch. God's okay with your adultery. God is fine the lifestyle you're living. God says there's peace and prosperity in your future. Everything is going to be okay. Just keep living the way that you live. Just make yourself happy. God is happy when you're happy. Now... Pop quiz. Which group of prophets was more popular, do you reckon? Now, if you said the second group, you weren't paying attention. They were, they were more popular. They were vastly more popular. Everybody loved them. But Jeremiah, Isaiah, man, their lives were hard. Their lives were hard because they were faithful to God's Word. Right? And that's what it was. God said this, and they went out and said, Thus says the Lord. And they built their messages on what God was saying to them at the time, but also what God had said through the law. And because they preached this, they were rejected. They were persecuted. They were sawn in half. They were tossed into pits. They had all manner of evil spoken against them falsely. True prophets were devoted to God and chose to be faithful to sharing God's word even when it cost them. And that's a part of what it means to be devoted to Jesus. That devotion to faithfulness is faithfulness in how we handle God's word. I think that's extremely important for us to understand. When it comes to God's word, the greatest requirement that we have for it, it is to be faithful. We aren't required to be eloquent. We're required to be faithful. We aren't required to know everything about it. We're required to be faithful. We aren't required to produce results and make people respond to it. We are required to be faithful. Being faithful, it means that we are faithful with God's Word and we are faithful to God's Word. That means we cannot fail to share God's Word. We cannot swap other stories for God's word. We cannot dilute God's word with our opinions, our politics, our preferences, or anything else. 
we have God's word and our devotion to Christ leads us to be faithful to say this is what God has said. And that at times will cause problems. Because God's word, it is unyielding. God's word doesn't care about your feelings. God's word doesn't care about what the culture says. God's word doesn't care about what the Bible scholar on Google says. God's word just has what God has said. And there are going to be times if we are faithful to Jesus, we are devoted to Jesus. Somebody is going to say, are you saying that if I don't believe in Jesus, I'll go to hell? And in that time, the test of our faithfulness will be seen. Will we say, well, you know, I don't know. You're a pretty good person. That's up to God. Or will we say, that's what the Bible says. Someone will say, are you saying it's wrong for me to live with my boyfriend without being married? And we'll say, well, you know, you just kind of have to find your own way in life and figure out what's right for you. Or we'll say, that's what the Bible says. Are you saying that homosexuality is a sin? And we'll say, well... You know, the world is really different than it was in the days of Paul. I don't think he could foresee the future that we live in today. Or we'll say, that's what the Bible says. And if we say that's what the Bible says, almost guaranteed it's going to be a costly answer. Because the person asking will not likely want to hear that. Before we came out here, I worked at a help desk for an internet service. And people would ask me Bible questions all the time. And I would ask them, do you want to know what the Bible says? Or do you just want me to tell you you're right? And if they said, well, I just want you to tell me, you know, I'm right. Or tell me what feels good. I would say, I am not the person to ask it. I will give you what the Bible says. But it is not likely to be what you want to hear. And it wasn't too costly. I mean, I lost some friends, but it wasn't that big of a deal. Um, but make no mistake, it'll be costly. Because the world at large doesn't have biblical worldview, biblical morality. And few people are asking because they really want to know what the Bible says. Most want you to tell them peace, peace. Despite the fact God has said there is no peace. Are we willing to pay the cost of being faithful to Scripture. And if we're not, that says a lot about what we're really devoted to in life. Now this attitude is unique in that there are two blessings associated with it. First, in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the same promise that was given in verse 3. Jesus, though, isn't saying that we become part of the kingdom by being faithful, by being devoted. What he's saying is, that devotion is a demonstration that we are part of the kingdom. It goes back to what we looked at in Matthew 10 and 22, where Jesus said that those who endure to the end, they shall be saved. This is what you might call a hard saying of Christ. 
someone perseveres through persecution and through hardship and trial in their devotion and their faithfulness to Jesus, that is a demonstration they are a born-again child of God. If, on the other hand, in the moment of crisis, in the moment of persecution and hardship, they waffle, they compromise, that is a demonstration that something is deeply wrong in their spiritual life. Very likely they have never really been born again to begin with. Those who know Jesus are devoted to Jesus regardless, regardless of the consequences. Then in verse 12 he says, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. We are out of time so I can't get into the whole reward thing. But what Jesus is essentially saying is, If we are faithful and we are devoted, no matter what, then what we will receive in heaven will be greater than anything we lose on earth. That the rewards that Jesus gives us are better than anything it cost us in this life. But do we believe that? Do we believe that what Jesus will give us in heaven is greater than the loss of a friendship, the loss of a job, the loss of a relationship, the loss of a reputation, the loss of whatever it may cost us? I mean, even to the point of the loss of life. Do we believe That Jesus can give us and He will give us rewards that are greater than anything devotion to Him can cost us in this life. Of course, obviously the right answer is yes. But is the right answer the real answer? I mean, that's that's what's most important. Is the real answer yes, that is what I believe. And if it is, then it will be seen in our devotion to Jesus regardless of what it costs. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.